Welcome to Regenerative Spaces, a podcast that explores holistic and sustainable paths toward thriving in the fields of agriculture, education, spirituality, and beyond. I'm your host, Stacy Poliche. I'm a regenerative farmer in Santa Barbara, California, with a background of three plus decades as a psychologist, environmental activist, author, and educator. Each week on this show, I get to chat with one of the essential teachers who has informed my own path and whose regenerative wisdom I want to share with you too. Boy, do I have a treat for you today. When researching for my book, Listen to the Children, I interviewed students about the ways our current education system tries to tame and shape children. This increasingly data-centered model ultimately strips them of their intrinsic resources, like their imagination, curiosity, playfulness, and vulnerability, and instead assimilates them into a conforming mode of thinking and behaving. During the research and interview process, one teacher came up over and over again as naturally embodying the four primary values I believe could revitalize our schools, care, connection, community, and choice. That teacher is none other than Jose Caballero. In today's episode, you'll hear how Jose started the Green Academy at Santa Barbara High School 20 years ago, which is now known as the Green Lab. And you'll learn why he's so highly regarded by the students and teachers alike. Jose is the embodiment of sustainability. He's a lifelong naturalist and outdoorsman and teaches AP environmental science, small-scale food production, and organic agriculture. I'm excited to take you back to the classroom today. So let's get started. So, hi, Jose. I'm so happy to see you. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Stacey. And I'm really excited today because you and I go way back. You have taught three of my children AP Environmental Science, which was really among their favorite classes. But not only that, I did a student well-being research for a PhD in psychology, and of all the students I mentioned, they all mentioned you as someone who provided what I call the four C's, care, connection, community, and choice, which made learning a pleasurable, positive experience that increased their self-esteem and self-motivation. And you were an exception to the public education system that can be a little bit what they called memorize, barf back, and forget. And even though that students recognized the humanity in teachers that they're overwhelmed, stressed out, and outnumbered is what they said, um, they still longed for that connection with teachers and somehow you've managed to bring that into your teaching. So I consider you a mentor teacher. I mean, you mentor the students in your teaching. You remain genuine, authentic, honest, and brave, I feel, in a system where that's not always the case. And you seem to keep things relevant. So I have since become a, a farmer and I'm practicing regenerative practices, which 
actually sees the soil as an important aspect of productivity. Um, so we're looking to reduce toxins, herbicides, pesticides, different practices that may harm or deplete living organisms in the soil and in the plants and actually do processes that build that system. Also looking at how we repair the climate, we repair water cycles, things like that. I mean, I could go on for a while, but in this case, I'm preaching to the choir because I know that you understand that. But I see education as being another system where conventional education may be a depleting kind of a system to the humans that exist within it in the same way that I'm starting to see conventional farming as depleting to what we're growing, to the land. And I'm wondering if you might be able to speak to that um, in the context of seeing schools as ecosystems. Does this make sense to you? It does make sense to me. I, I thought that was actually a profound metaphor to use. I, I do see the depletion the same way that we can push soil too much without adequate inputs when we focus too much on outputs. I do see some parallels with like green revolution intensifying of agriculture and the way that we've sort of intensified education, focusing on just a few outputs without enough support and without a holistic uh, goal. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely see that. I think it makes a lot of sense to me. So maybe seeing parallels between the performance data that we're looking for from students as the same thing as productivity, you might say, even if it's a non-nutritious, in some cases, actually harmful food. Like some foods are so depleted in GMO that they're causing potentially autoimmune disorders or whatnot, or malnutrition at the very least. In some ways we're getting, we're looking for test scores as um, the outputs that we're trying to amp up without actually addressing those those invisible factors in some case. So could you kind of speak to what may some of those invisible factors, because I know that you address those things, and I'm wondering if you could speak to how you see that. What's necessary for students? What do they need when they come in? Well, I, I think that they need personal connection. I think that students need to know us as adults, um, I, I spend a lot of time with my community's teenagers. I could be one of the adults that they spend the most time with. And that's an opportunity for them to learn and to have somebody else who supports them and knows them and cares about them. And I think a lot of our focus on outputs in education is cut away at that time uh, we, we don't have time for those personal relationships. And I, I think those are really important. Um, I think students need also time for relationships with each other. And I feel like that is often sacrificed by schools, increasingly so. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I feel like in general, the thing that we don't see, you, you, you asked about those unseen variables 
Right. I think that our focus on outcomes uses a lot of cheat codes, uh, a lot of uh, shortcuts to get the outcome that we looked for without really solving problems. So you can spray pesticide on a rice plantation every single day to keep the bugs off the rice. That has horrific ecological impacts, um, social impacts, economic costs. But at the end of the day, you can push that rice to reach harvest without a debilitating load of bugs. It's not a strong plant. It's not a strong system, but you can push for that outcome. And so I view a lot of green revolution stuff as, as having cheated agriculture to get greater output. And I feel like a lot of our education systems are maybe cheating the schools to get desired outputs. For example, at, at my school, um, we had a, a problem with, with using really punitive discipline. We were suspending a lot of students and mm -hmm. uh, that's clearly a problem. And so one way that we fixed that is we just made it more difficult to suspend students. If a student has an outburst in my class, which would rise to that level of intervention, I have to do more paperwork and I have to interrupt class. And there's a bunch more steps. So suspension rates went down. And that is a success in the sense of outcomes. But I see that as a failure to our students because it doesn't address root causes of those behaviors. It doesn't offer us better management of our classrooms. And a lot of students and teachers would say that classroom management is more problematic. We got that output, but we sort of cheated for it. I think I'm remembering the program. Was it restorative justice practices that were brought in and no longer were students going to be referred to the assistant principal for discipline, but the teacher was asked to manage it. And that's a, a much more difficult process and disruptive for the class. Is that still the case? Yeah, I mean, I think restorative justice approaches are a really good idea in education. I don't yeah. want to single that out as a thematic right. problem. But the implementation, I think, is is what I wanted to focus on, that, that we have a clear problem and we focus just on fixing the output part without putting in the inputs. You know, if we were worried about student behavior, we could have invested more time in our students, offered more supports to our students, brought in more staff, different or better training, I would consider those more inputs. And as a farmer, if you want healthier rice, you could also just take better care of your water and of your soil and of your system around that rice. And so I, for me, I'm struggling to note which inputs are viable because I know that we don't have more money, so we can't have more adults and we can't afford more supports. And so I, I struggle with that. I, I think um, I, I see the schools as being really 
depleted by all of these shortcuts and I, I'm not sure which outputs we could add. Well, one of the scarcities that I feel like I've heard mentioned is time. Seems like time keeps shrinking for the teachers and for the students, which puts pressure on both teachers and students and, and the task at hand. And I know that increased pressure and stress, you know, somebody once said, fear makes you stupid. And I just think it doesn't increase our creativity or true thriving. So what do you think about that, about time? How has that, because you've been teaching for a while and have you noticed how that may be changing or what are the main things that you see changing? Uh, time is the big one in my experience. Uh, I have been teaching for 20 years mm-hmm. and uh, the school day changes, the distribution of time per course changes. And I noticed that I have less time to support a student who's struggling or confused. I have less time to enrich my classes. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I get people from the community that reach out and say, hi, I'd love to come give you a guest lecture. And I, I wish I could do that, but I have, um, you know, com- compared to my first years of teaching, I have in some cases less than half the time wow. in, a, in a course that I did 20 years ago. What happened to that time? Excuse me. You know, it's, it's that time is uh, diverted to other purposes. And so we've shortened class time so that students can fit more classes into the school year. So the the beginning and the end of the day are the same, but we cut it into smaller pieces. Uh, it's like the same pizza with smaller slices. So we've shortened class time per course as a way to offer students more courses. Uh, we also have found that we need time on campus for other things, and they're valuable things. Uh, uh, time for the counselors to come present to the students. Uh, time within the school day for students to have no instruction so that they have time to work on uh, paperwork and do their um, do their homework or whatever. Oh, that's um, great. And so they're all good ideas, but it's not like we're making more school. We're just subdividing it further. And so time has time has been lost. I don't I don't have the time to chat with my students. Uh, like I did before, uh, they don't have the time to learn about me. And I, I liked that. I, I liked being personal with them. Um, the content of the course is starkly diminished. And uh, I feel like the, the kids that learn great from the textbook will always be fine. But a lot of the students that I know need my attention, they don't, I don't have the time for them anymore. I think that time's, time's definitely been lost. Um, we've we've stretched it too thin. Well, it's amazing because I remember your course, mm-hmm. AP. So it's an AP course, and there's a lot of information. It's really good information, but there's an AP exam at the end of the year. Have they changed what's expected in terms of knowledge? 
or is it just extracting more correct? Like, do they have to memorize more writing? How does that work? If it's the same AP test, they have less time for instruction and less time to actually absorb it. One thing I, I think I understand is that you used to allow some time for the students to apply what they learned to projects in the community. And for some reason, there's no more time for that. But are they, do they have less mastery now than they did in the past? Or how does that work? It's my impression that many of the students have less mastery, yes, because there's less time. The content of the course is very similar, and the amount of time to offer that content is uh, less. And so I feel like some students could do great in the class without me, but the students who need the most support are the ones who've suffered the most um, because we just have to, you know, I, I feel like we always have to keep moving, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I know that this is, this is true everywhere. Um, you know, if, if there's five levels of Spanish, there is some general agreement uh, nationally on what Spanish 2, 3, 4, and 5 uh, would require. And so nobody's changing your curricular goal, but if you have less time, then I, I feel like you can't really offer enough to the students who need it, who needed all of that time. Yeah, I've heard of something called there are shallow learners and deep learners and shallow learners test well and deep learners tend not to test as well, something like that. And so there are different kinds of learners and those, I mean, it sounds actually like a judgment, but shallow learner is somebody that can really skim through, get the basic concepts, test well on it and move on. Whereas somebody who really needs, wants to comprehend and go deeply into it. And I would imagine this is your subject. This is your passion. Um, that's hard uh, because I know in, in, in the case of some of our kids, it, it became their passion. You know, your environmental science became their passion. So um, that must be, might be hard on your, your end of things too. And I remember, you know, I did that teacher well-being research, which um, you'll remember, and what impact this has on teachers' lives. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I can. For one thing, the depth of the content is the good stuff. Um, I should add that not all testing relies merely on shallow learning. Well-designed testing includes depth, understanding, and application. And getting to that level is really rewarding. As, as a teacher, when the kids are swimming in a topic and they have a chance to think about it for a minute and argue about it and maybe challenge you on it or ask you questions on it, um, you see that they're you know, really getting it and it kind of opens their eyes and it's like you, you know, notice subtext in a good novel or you find nuance in a piece of music. And I feel like in environmental science, there's a lot of moments where the students get to see a bigger picture. And that's, of course, 
a luxury of time. You know, you, you have to have that option to, to sit with it for a while. And uh, I'm sure I could teach better, but I also know that it was easier for me when we had the luxury of time. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't found a way to move on from losing instructional time. That's been uh, really devastating in, in my room and for my students. Well, I see that in that extra time, that building community and having students that understand um you know, your classroom, you, you managed to create sort of like a, a space of meaning, like you are a community in that classroom. And this is what we do here. Um, and you used to do something called hot seat. Like if they got all their work done, you would answer any question they had. Do you get still get to do stuff like that? And another thing I want to point to and, and get your feedback, you use your first name and that's pretty unusual. Is that still true? You always, oh, Jose was your name and everybody else went by Mr. or Mrs. Yeah, I think both of those things tie together for me. I, I've always struggled to assume authority. And so being the grown up in the room, uh, it seems like for some people being the grown up in the room means uh, you can take leadership and, um, you can be in a role of credibility, but I've never been good at that. I can't assume that I have that authority. And so I feel like in my case, it's important to me that students understand me as a person. Uh, I use my first name, I think as a signal that I don't assume a different status, that I'm, I don't use another preface either another preface either i don't uh, i don't uh, i don't want a title um, mm-hmm. i'm 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 this person and the hot seat thing is a part of that it's uh, i think you asked if i still do it and and i should add that i very rarely can mm-hmm. um, but i think it's important for students to know you because I feel like that's an application of information. If we're talking about climate change and the students find out that I drive a V6 pickup truck, I think that that's a moment to understand some of the trade-offs that we all make as adults in society. And I feel like it helps the students see where they fit in the idea that maybe we do make some trade-offs sometimes or that there are limits to the solutions that we can espouse or that, you know, if they ask me, I could explain economic forces or practical personal reasons uh, that affect why I drive a Tacoma and how I address climate change in my personal life. I think that being known as a person is very helpful for those things. I do too. And I, I think, um, showing an interest, the word love I've noticed isn't really a welcome word in school campuses. And yet that is a big piece of what I see the, the, best teachers and many of the teachers that is what they're bringing is love and witnessing and 
Um, I think, you know, I, I've seen it as a calling for some people. This has almost got a spiritual dimension to it, I think, teaching. Do you know what I'm talking about there? I think so. I think you can't be a farmer if you don't like to nurture. And I don't think that you can be a teacher if you don't love young people. Mm -hmm. I hope it's not a taboo because I've never denied it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, it goes without saying, right. I mean, most of us are clearly not there for the money. Um, we're not motivated by the social clout. Um, my benefits aren't that great. Um, I got a parking spot this year. That's kind of exciting, but really the, the peripherals of the job don't mean much. We are there because we love them. And I, I would say every colleague I can think of is motivated first and foremost by that. Yeah, that's that's what we're all there for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the the teacher well-being research, that was kind of what came through, as well as just the relationships that that you find teachers find at school with students, with colleagues, and often they were looking for uh, connection with admin as well. And so it, that same hierarchical notion of the admin being people, being known humans, we're all in this together, we're all pulling together from different spots. Um, that came up a lot in the research. And how is that going in the years since that research, would you say? I'd say it's not going well. Okay. I would, I think that this is a, for me, uh, this is an obvious parallel with ecosystem management or ecologically sound management. Um, there's a John Muir quote that I could butcher. Uh, when we pluck something up from nature, we find it connected to everything else in the universe. Mm -hmm. And we uh, appropriate that when we teach ecology, we talk about connections between species in a system. So for fourth graders, we talk about food webs, which is like a very basic introduction to how species are connected to each other through the transfer of energy, who eats whom. And when kids get a little older, we talk about other community level interactions, uh, how some species provide habitat for others, how predators regulate diversity, how some species contribute nutrient cycling to their ecosystems. There's all these weird connections. And I feel that at schools, those connections are really profound, uh, not just between teachers and students, but among teachers and between teachers and their administrators. Um, a good old friend of mine has become an interim principal at my school. And he walked by my classroom yesterday or today and he peeked through the door. And because I know him, I could read in his face that he was concerned about something and I could tell that it was serious. So it was easy for me to respond, tell my students it's going to be just a second. And I went outside mm -hmm. to talk to this guy who happens to be my boss. But the fact that I know him, I think made it easier for us to have a difficult conversation quickly without disturbing my students. And the outcome of which was to support another student who really needed our help those that that degree of connection is really difficult if i didn't already know this guy 
and uh, he's the exception to the rule. Right, right now at my school, like a lot of schools everywhere, there's so much turnover in management that between me and the superintendent, there's maybe one person who's been in town five years. Um, every one of my assistant principals is new to the community. We're hiring a new principal, most likely from without our community. And most of the leadership positions at our school district are people who don't come from our community. Those, those relationships have been breaking down and I feel like that makes it harder for all of us to do our job. And that's an obvious ecosystem analogy for me. There's a loss of institutional memory. Yeah. And the, and the loss of interconnectedness, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of little subtle connections that are required for every part of the system. Right. And I think that we keep swapping pieces around in education. And I think that that's breaking down a lot of those relationships that we depend on. Yeah, I get that. And I think about the findings from the study and that was really spoken to so that finding time for connection, finding time to get to know each other is a priority. And I know we've tried in different ways. I know, you know, the nonprofit AHA was running some teacher connection circles and there was some funding for things like that where they bring in programs that might help with these kinds of intangibles um, or um, the relationship aspect, because what we're talking about is, is humans, you know, cultivating growing humans. And so spending that time allowing those to develop, it's like you can't cheat mother nature. It takes as long as, you know, in a garden, it takes as long as it takes. Yeah. And same with, with students and teach, you know, humans, any, any human system is what I'm starting to notice. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know how to put that. I mean, again, this is about time. Uh, We could rephrase this and make it about money. So if we had more money, maybe we could afford more in-service days, more community building days, um, more interaction time. I think that we, there's a lot of ways to describe the, the lacking of things. We, we don't have enough money to afford the time. So I guess those are interchangeable. Um, and in the end, I, I think that I just keep thinking of our depletion, how we're just like, I mean, we're, our, our school system is desertifying, you know, we Mm -hmm. have no, no inputs of the things that are required. There's nothing, nothing left to build things stronger. And we just have um, more isolation, less relationships, less time. Um, and that, that to what end? Yeah, that doesn't feel sustainable. Um, I I don't think that our students are better at the content that I teach them. I don't. I can't speak to their math, English, or other proficiencies. But at least at at what I do, I don't think that we're making them academically better. And so it's frustrating. It's yeah. Um, it can be a little discouraging sometimes. I mean, there's, there's right. always these gems, you know, I, every day I have some cool interaction with some kid, um, you know, just today, a whole, a whole class full of kids caught me off guard and did some really cool stuff. And it, 
put me in a good mood. I've been in a good mood all day. I was in a good mood yeah. when I showed up today because of that. But um, I, I do have a little angst, I would say, about the things that are running out. It's funny because when you, when you see regenerative, regenerative agriculture, you can see that the soil is getting better and it shows up pretty fast. I mean, if, I mean, I'm an old man, uh, I guess in two or three years, you can kick it with your boot and, and good soil shows it's obvious, uh, mm-hmm. plant performance shows, um, other parts of the system will show, uh, you know, more pollinators and more flowers and more birds and more output from your plants. Um, and so I, I dream of that in schools. You know, I, I wonder what, what it would be. You know, I, I know that in agriculture, I can usually walk onto a farm and throw down a few ideas pretty fast. And at the school, I wish I could wave my wand and say more, more time for everybody. Everybody gets paid better. So they'll quit moving out of town. Well, one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, we were conventional, we've been shifting to regenerative and there's a fear factor there about changing and what's going to happen. And I think humans in general are afraid to change things, even if they think it's not working. It's like, we'll just do that same thing harder. And that's one of the feelings I have about education is that we all know that there's, you know, the warning signal, the warning signs are there and nobody's willing to change it deeply. And what it makes me want to ask you is I know that you have taught, it was originally a zero period. So outside of the normal set of, of hours for school, but now you've got a couple of periods where you have a once abandoned space that I call the green lab. I don't know if you do, but the outdoor classroom where you teach small scale food production and Tell me a little bit about that, how that works, and then how that differs from that academic curriculum and how do they compare as styles of education? You know, because maybe there's some hints in the garden. Uh, that's a really fortuitous question. I do call it the green lab. There was a space when I started at the school that had been previously used for storing trash. Um, There was a small homeless encampment. Um, The goal was someday to bulldoze it all to make a parking lot. So the teachers whose classrooms were nearby were really excited about the parking lot potential. Mm -hmm. Um, And it had been in disuse or ill repair for a couple of decades, I think. It was a, a neglected end of the campus. And uh, by hook or by crook, we started teaching a course that we eventually called small-scale food production. It went under various academic umbrellas from year to year. It was, for a while, a dual enrollment city college course, and eventually it became a high school elective. But the basic premise has been the same for 20 years. Uh, It's a student-run space um, where the kids manage 
uh, pretty much everything. They do uh, a lot of the, you know, crude uh, construction. Uh, we have chickens, we have bees, uh, we have seed to seed production, uh, we have row crops, uh, perennials, trees. Uh, we now have an outdoor classroom, uh, a greenhouse, and um, it is the antithesis of a lot of the things that I dislike about education. Uh, it's a relatively egalitarian system where as long as the kids work, you know, they all get credit. Um, they just have to be there and participate. Um, some, somewhere around 90% of my students get A's because they just go and they do the stuff. Um, it's weird when, when you make kids play with dirt, they don't really need to have a nice outfit and they don't need to be a valedictorian. And there's an equalizing factor. I think we all find sweating uncomfortable and uh, none of us like splinters. And so I find a really strange blend of students that are drawn to that. Uh, I have a, a really diverse group of students there. Um, they do all the work and I just sort of point them around. Uh, a lot of them take ownership for parts of the space and they come back year after year to do the elective over and over just so that they can uh, run the chickens or run the greenhouse or start an aquaponics project or whatever. And for them, I think it's noticeably different too. I, I tell them in the first day of school that there's no no paper, no calendar, no exams. Um, we have to do a, a modicum of academic output uh, to remain a class, but we, we try to make that really attainable and really practical. And almost the whole time, they just sort of run a garden. And I noticed that they are relaxed. They appreciate the time. They, they thank me at the end of the day, you know, and they walk out and they say, thank you, Jose. And that's really heartwarming, you know, for me. And um, I know that they enjoy it. They come back, they visit, um, they'll graduate and we text each other and students will tell me about their home gardens. And, um, it's a, it's my opus and I'm really happy that it exists and, and that so many students appreciate it. I mean, I really think kids need a break from school. I, I feel like such a tyrant. I'm, I'm part of the school system and I don't think it's really always good for kids. Right. And therefore, is it always good for teachers? But yeah, if the fantasy is that we're, we're helping kids, it's like, oh, we're, we're helping children to become adults. I call it adultifying sometimes because it's this, this sort of abstraction of what it means. And what if you could learn just about any subject through a garden? And what if all subjects could feel more or less like this? Do you think that's possible? I wonder. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I am a, at, at the same time, I, I have high expectations academically. I, I do think that school should teach things that are not necessarily easy or pleasant. I, my own, I, I expect that my son and daughter, 
should do their best in English and math, even if they're not necessarily stimulated by every day of English and math. But I feel like a garden is an interesting metaphor again. You know, a, a garden is not a thing that you make or an item that you buy. It's a habit that you do. Um, gardens don't don't really survive if you're not there all the time and you're not investing in it. And it's a long-term goal. And there's good days and bad days and hard days and easy days. And um, I, I do think that education is should be like that, that there should be good days and bad days, but it should be something that kids can show up, commit to, accept the long path and uh, be present to do the easy and the hard and the good and the bad. It's just, I'm not sure that it's fair to make them show up when we know that they can't. That's, that's the part where I feel terrible about school. Um, and that's the part where I have such, where I'm so excited about the garden is because I think it's a break in the school day that makes them do better at the school stuff. I think that if we whittle down our students to just performers of academic outcomes, then that looks at them as these really reductionist units that are overly simplified, but humans aren't that way. I think humans need other things in their day. We, we make the students show up and we say, sit there, be quiet, here's paper, give me the output I need from you. And then we move them to the next classroom and make them do that again. And then we move them to another classroom and we make them do yeah, that Yeah, it's a again. conforming mechanistic. So you're just a cog that it dehumanizes. Yeah, I, I wish that we could that we could support the whole student. Um, there's a whole network of connections that makes the student a better person. And I feel that when kids are well, they also learn better. And so we do get those outcomes. Just like a really healthy tomato plant will give you some really heckin' good tomatoes. I think that a, a really heckin' healthy high school student will have a really accomplished academic career. I just wish that we could focus on the whole student and find ways to give them all those inputs that they need. Right. That holistic context. That's what I've been studying lately in the agriculture is using that bigger context. Um, and you and I have talked about metaphors and how they can be imperfect, but what I see is they can also be a bridge when you're stuck or if you're, you know, in a hole, it's a way out. You know, you use your imagination and you start to create bridges out of where you're at. And for me, the garden just feels like a really great metaphor. And it sounds like you know it by practice because you teach these very, these related classes. I'm sure a lot of those kids have taken both of your classes, but there's a lot of relationship between what you teach and, and yet the feeling and the, let's say some of the qualities like self-esteem or, or motivation or a sense of agency, these are all invisible. 
qualities, but they're so important to the human beings that we're creating. And so I just think that that garden as a metaphor and how would we maybe incorporate that more? It's funny, as I was, um, I just picked up a book that came in the mail. It's called The Well-Gardened Mind, The Restorative Power of Nature. And I just happened to have grabbed it, but it's kind of what you're talking about a little bit. And so maybe a magic wand, like, how do we create thriving school systems? Like what would your takeaways be? So I think if I had a magic wand and this is big, but for starters, I think it would be wise to set terms of employment for people who manage education and I would want them to be lengthy terms. Um, I think that a superintendent, for example, should have to serve a 10 year term or something that that's just off the cuff. I'm not being serious about that number, but I think there should be a minimum expectation that they have some investment because I think that we measure success very impulsively in education. And so we make all these little changes and before it's had a chance to mature, we say that was a success or that was a failure. And then we come up with a new idea. Um, I, I often use the same description. I, I, this, this comes up a lot in my private life. And I always say that a, a school is like someone who has a, a massive, who, who requires a massive intervention. Imagine like a, a three-day surgery. Like that's going to be a long, a long job. And I feel like a lot of our superintendents, they come in for a couple of minutes. They say, cut here, tie one of these here, you put your finger there, and then they leave. And a new administrator comes in and says, wait, untie this and move that finger, and then they leave. And then somebody else comes by, and we have this, the problem that I see is that our leadership isn't there long enough to learn the whole system, make changes, evaluate the outcomes, and then respond. I think that our decision-making cycle is too impulsive. And I think it would be important if people in leadership had longer term. What's interesting is about listening to you speak is that's what I have learned about agriculture and land practices. You can't come in and just, oh, this, that, the other thing. Everything takes time to manifest and mature and the symbiosis that is created by this decision, you know, in the soil, with the roots, with the plant, with the what, it takes time. So I really hear what you're saying there about give people a longer period of time or require a longer period of time in order to really dig in to the community, understand the context, um, as well as try things and then have the time to let them mature. 
and fruit and make adaptations. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's an excellent, that's an excellent connection. I, I definitely, I think that that would be my first magic wand item. And to me, it seems really obvious. And I'm kind of amazed that other people haven't talked, that this hasn't already evolved on its own in the school system. Another change that I would make is the time. I know that both as a parent and as an educator, this is horrifying, but I think kids should have more time at school. Like the, the day should be longer and there should be more school days. And I, both as a teacher and as a parent, that is horrifying, but I, I think more time is important. I mean, the, the alternative would be that we just start cutting out things from school and say math is no longer necessary. And that seems even more reckless. So I suppose I think we just need more time. And I would imagine we could use this time um, to give them more breathing room, uh, to make them all take the garden class or maybe it's not for everybody, maybe uh, to, to take a music class or to take an art class or find something where they're not being pressed for outcomes, but instead they're just engaged in a process where who cares how good your calligraphy is? We just want you to do calligraphy for a while so you can ride this out for nine months. I think that would be really important and it doesn't have to be my garden class that it feels punitive. I know some students would not enjoy it, but I think some long-term investment in a thing that you just should do for a while would make kids more better off. It would make them healthier. I think. And it sounds like maybe using more of their senses, their five or six senses, um, Whereas it's kind of like education if it can tend to be from the neck up. Certainly, yes. And I think it might just be giving them a, a hobby. Mm -hmm. I, I remember how much I loved wood shop. I've done carpentry my whole life since. And what I liked about Woodshop was that it felt like a hobby at school. Like the thing I liked was going to school to do this thing that was rewarding in and of itself. And so maybe, maybe another way to say this is we should have mandatory hobby time at school. I mean, it, it sounds silly to say it this way. I, I understand this isn't a packaged proposal, but my, my gut, is drawing me to this. I just don't know how to describe it correctly. Um, I, I could imagine that being really helpful time for students. Something that they could do every day that wasn't about the other academic outcomes. Right. That they can express themselves through electives or arts. Um, and, yeah, different yeah. ways of being in the world rather than just bubble tests and essays. There's other ways of expressing yeah. who you are and your view. 
you know, something rewarding in their day. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the kids, I mean, it's, it's tough to expect them to do school if they just pretty much hate being there. That's, that's a lot to ask of a young person. Right. So how do we, how do we improve the experiences would be part of it. Like how do we make it a better experience for teachers and students? Do you think, I mean, I, I saw there being a big tie in between, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on the teachers to set the tone that the students will drop into. And I think that was one of the differences that you're able to make is that the tone you, you have managed to set despite all is qualitatively different and offers something that, that is magnetic because there's a humanity, there's a humane, real, genuine living being in that classroom rather than, um, if, if, if one, you know, the pressure from the system is to become all about just hitting targets and so that you're no longer, it seems like it would be a temptation for a teacher to no longer bring your, your full self, your whole self into that space, but rather you're trying to comply with what's expected of you, which keeps tightening. And so, I mean, is that, does that seem true? It does seem true. I think I am at my best as a teacher when I'm at my best as a person. Mm. It's tough to tell the kids value this in and of itself. It's much easier to say value this as part of a balance with other things. I I know that my my colleagues struggle. You know, t- teachers have. Uh, uh, horrible depression, substance abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, the turnover in my profession is massive. And so I, I don't think that we are very compelling when we talk to kids and we are miserable. I don't have a lot of credibility if I am suffering all day. Mm-hmm. And so I think maybe some of my success in the classroom is because I'm happy I have a awesome family and they support me in a bunch of ways and that maybe makes it easier to do my job so I can babble about the content when the time comes for that but I can be present as a human when the time comes for that and maybe that gives me the credibility that helps the students engage with the content I think another solution that I could imagine, I wish that we could keep our teachers. I know that in other, in some other countries, teachers are paid better. And in some parts of California, teachers are paid better. And I hate to make this about money, um, but I think that practically speaking, a lot of our better staff are forced by circumstance to move to a different career. Um, it, it seems really unfortunate that we can't keep some of our better teachers that the teachers can't afford to keep doing it. Um, or that they never enter the profession because they have better options. Um, that seems like something that should be fixable. And then I, I, I also really wish that we could have greater parent engagement, by which I mean not not PTA bring us brownies, but 
be engaged in the decisions that the school is making uh, to kind of hold decision makers' feet to the fire. I think that would be really important. I, I know that not all people have the luxury to invest their time in schools, but I really, because this is a magic wand moment, I would love to have parents more involved in the conversation about the priorities of our school and how the school is run. Um, I would rather that a parent was arguing with my boss than bringing me brownies, for example. I think that for them to be engaged in the decision-making process would be really, really important. So is there a way for parents to imagine education? Like if we think of education as an ecosystem, if I'm the parent, I was educated in this system. I'm now sending my kids to school. And it's actually, if I'm part of a cycle, a natural cycle, it's like for me to contribute to that cycle in some ways would be relevant. And it's something that's actually needed. Um, as we go into the future, since we keep coming up short in terms of time and money, is there are there ways that parents could actually find ways to contribute um, to their own students' education or to the teachers? Tell me what you think about that. I think it's tough for people to contribute when they assume everything is okay. Uh, if you walk by a conventional farm in the Central Valley, you might assume that that's how farms work and that that's a healthy system. And so I think that I, I could forgive a lot of parents for not realizing that their school might not be doing very well. I think maybe before we imagine what parents should do, maybe they should first of all, hear the reality of how things are at school. I, I know a lot of parents have no idea that my class is, you know, 50% the time that it was when their other sibling took the same course, for example. Um, I think that a lot, of, a lot of parents don't know. But if they did, I think the other question is whether parents could see a way to help a way to get involved. I think that some of, you know, th these are pretty big institutions. Um, the same way that uh, high, that uh, agriculture has industrialized, I think schools are kind of industrial. They're big and they're impenetrable and they're guided from far away by mysterious powers. And so I'm not sure that parents see a way to get involved and to participate and to help and to give back. And so I, I feel like maybe greater transparency and permeability for parents would be really important uh, for them to better know what's going on at their schools, just to meet their teachers and to, to get to know their teachers and to know what the teachers need and then to find out who to talk to about what's going on at the school and how to, how to be part of those conversations, uh, I think that would be really important. I, I believe that most parents would like to be more involved. 
maybe they don't know how much they're needed and maybe they don't know how to get involved. Right. And I, I do think what I, what you said about administration, having a longer um, time commitment, it would allow for a longer time to develop a, a community, a sense of belonging values and be more inclusive maybe for everyone in the, in the community, in our, in educating our young people. And I can only imagine that would feel good to teachers if they felt like all those factors were with them in this task of educating young people. Absolutely. I, I actually wonder how would things change if every family in Santa Barbara was asked to sign the superintendent's recommendation letter when she applies for a job at the state. You know, what, what, if, what if we had to evaluate her as parents to give feedback, you know, to, to have some... I, I wish that parents had an opportunity to be more involved in decisions um, for, for it to matter, you know, what, what parents think their superintendent is doing to their schools or something. Mm-hmm. Well, the stakes are so high in a way I can see it as a parallel with voting. Like you should be informed because it matters. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that engagement issue again, you know, do, do they know what's going on? Do they know how to get it, get involved? Well, I think we need to wrap now, but I so appreciate you being here and pondering schools as ecosystems and the many ways that you're involved in teaching and guiding and helping out with our young people. I really respect what you do. So thank you so much, Jose. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to hang out and talk. We'll have you on again. I hope so. To be continued. That's a wrap for today's episode of Regenerative Spaces. If you found this episode valuable or thought-provoking, share it with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll keep the conversation going over on Instagram. So join me at Stacy Poliche and share your thoughts, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. And before we go, your support means the world to me. If you have a moment, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us reach even more people looking to spark sustainable change in our world. Stay curious, stay inspired, and until next time, this is Stacy Poliche and you've been listening to Regenerative Spaces.